Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help to understand his word and uh, to change as we hear his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you because you have given us your word, the Bible. We pray that as we look at this longish section from 1 Chronicles tonight, that you will encourage us as we see you fulfilling your promises and that you will challenge us as we see how you fulfill your promises. Please strengthen us not just to understand your word, but to put into practice in our lives what we learn. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you picture church? What, uh, what's the kind of image of church that, ha- that you have in mind? How do you feel? What are we doing here? What's your role? What's your place? What would you compare church to? What kind of model of church do you have in your mind? Let me give you a few examples. Many people around today follow what I call the theatre model of church. So you've got your, you got your preacher, you've got your band, and, and their aim is to put on a good show. The, the, the music is slick, the preacher gives an entertaining message. These kinds of churches, their aim is to give a top-class presentation, and the congregation, the congregation's role is to be the audience. Uh, they come along to see the show. Another model of church is what I call the shopping centre model. So we want a church that meets our needs, that meets our desires. And so I come with my shopping list. I'm looking for a church with a good children's program. Tick. Uh, preaching that keeps me awake. Uh, inspiring singing. Uh, decent coffee. Tick. Uh, comfortable chairs. Tick. Uh, and, and I will shop around until I find what I'm looking for. In this model, the congregation are the consumers. The consumers of a product. The church product, TM. Uh, another model, another model of church is what I call the bus model. Uh, you can see Warren's done this because it's all technologically uh, significant. <laughs> the Chatswood Presbyterian 632, bus. Uh, so the bus model, the minister is the driver. He preaches the sermon, he leads the worship, does the singing, he does the weddings and baptisms and funerals, he's always around for a nice cup of tea. That The minister is the driver and we're the congregation... Well, they're the passengers going along for the ride with their religious leader. Another model of church, another model is is what I call the church in a box model. So church is where I have the religious compartment of my life, the religious section of my life. This is my religious part of my life. So I've been reading a book on Australian Presbyterianism that I just gave to Anita tonight, um, so I won't get to read the rest of it. But, uh, well, it says this. The heart of Presbyterian religious practice is attendance at Sunday service. That's that's exactly the idea I'm talking about. Church is my religious section. It's where I do my religious stuff. I try to put on a holy smile for an hour or two on Sunday, just about as much as I can bear you all, until I can get out into the real world where I have my family compartment and where I have my work compartment. So church is this discrete section of my otherwise ordinary, indistinguishable from anybody else life. How do you think of church? What would you compare it to? What's, what's the model in your mind? How do you fit into this model of church that's in your mind? Well, we've come, as I said this evening, to this third of our studies on 1 Chronicles. Now, last week, do you remember what we saw? We saw the kingdom of Israel change hands. So there was a guy who was the king. His name was, can you remember, Saul? Yep, so Saul was the king, but he was unfaithful to God. God killed him. 
and God raised up instead a bloke by the name of David to be king. Okay, now you may have noticed, it was pointed out last week, that over and over again it said in that section that this was happening in accordance with God's promises. God was keeping his promise to make David king. Well, now in this next section, in this fairly lengthy section, the author tells us how it is that God kept his promise, how it is that God established David as the king. And the author starts off with a list of men. He tells us exactly who they are and why he's listing them. He says, these are the men who supported David, who helped David, who enabled him to extend his kingship through all Israel. So 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 10. Have a look with me. 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 10. These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. And here's the list of David's mighty men. Now just notice how that holds together that little section. You see, it's as the Lord has promised. Okay? God has promised David will be king of Israel. But how does he make David king of Israel? Well, not by sending an angel, not by having sky riding or something like that. No, no, no. God uses people to keep his promise. He uses their unanimity. If you've if you got all Israel there, he uses their teamwork. He uses mighty men that we're about to hear about. God keeps his promises through the faithful service of his people. Well, let's have a look at some of these Uh, Some of this faithful service, the author gives us his list now, this list of impressive courage in the face of extraordinary threats. So from verse 11, this is the list of David's mighty men. Jashabim, a hackmanite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines gathered there for battle. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines. But they, this is three blokes, they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory. Three of the 30 chiefs came down to David to a rock at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, this is only just a a few K away from Jerusalem. So basically the Philistines have taken over the whole of Israel. They're coming right up to where Jerusalem is. So the Philistines are are all over the place. Um, David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honoured above the three and became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. 
Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. And now the mighty men were... Asahel, the brother of Joab. Someone would be very pleased I didn't give them this to read. Uh, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem. And so on. I won't read all the names. But down to verse 47. Eliel, Obed, and Jaziel, the Mesobaite. Okay, there they are. Can you see why they're there? Who they are? These are the mighty men. What are they doing? Why have they been listed here? Because they bravely did their bit. They stood up and overcame great obstacles. And and through them, God fulfilled his promise and made David king over all Israel. Next section. Next section is quite similar, but what we're doing here in chapter 12 is we jump back in time. So we've got a bit of a flashback happening here. Uh, We go back to the time while King Saul is still alive. Uh, Back to the time when Saul is the king... And because of his jealousy for David, he's trying to kill David. And so David, far from being king at this time, he is an outlaw. He's a fugitive. He's running for his life. Let's work through chapter 12. We're not going to read all of it. But let me point a few things out to you. We'll read most of it, starting in verse 1. Now notice when and, and, and where and when we are. It's back when Saul is pursuing David. And notice who follows David here. It's men from Saul's own tribe, men from the tribe of Benjamin. Chapter 12 and verse 1. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. They were kinsmen of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Ahiezer, their chief, and etc. All the names down to verse 8. Verse 8, where we see some tough guys from the tribe of Gad also joins up with him. Verse 8, some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. They were brave warriors, ready for battle and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. Ezra was the chief. And more names, etc. down to verse 14. 14, these Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred and the greatest for a thousand. It was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and they put to flight everyone living in the valleys to the east and to the west. Our next group, more men, more men from the tribe of Benjamin, from Saul's tribe. Also some people from Judah, which is David's tribe. Notice here um, what Amasai says. Uh, Amasai, spirit comes on him and he talks about how God is helping David. Verse 16. 16. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David went out to meet them and said, If you have come to me in peace to help me, I'm ready to have you unite with me. But if you have come to betray me to my enemies, when my hands are free from violence, may the God of our fathers see it and judge you. Then the spirit came upon Amasai, who later was to be chief of the 30, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Success, success to you and success to those who help you. For your God will help you. So David received them and made them leaders of his raiding bands. Uh, Some more men coming up in verse 19, this time from the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 19, some of the men of Manasseh defected to David when he went with the Philistines to fight against Saul. 
Uh, he and his men did not help the Philistines because after consultation their rulers sent him away. They said it'll cost us our heads if he deserts to his master Saul. When David went to Ziklag, these were the men of Manasseh who defected to him. Um, Adna, Jozebad, Jediel, Michael, Jozebad, Elihu and Zilathai, leaders of units of a thousand in Manasseh, they helped David against raiding bands for all of them were brave warriors and they were commanders in his army. And now the author concludes this section. He says men kept coming, kept joining up with David, kept getting on his team until he had a big army. So day after day men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. Okay, that's section number two. Do you notice again the way God helped David to become king? Okay, here he is, he's an outlaw, he's a fugitive, Saul is the king, he's on the run, doesn't look like he's ever going to become king, but God gathers up this great army around him. God is helping David. That's what Amasai prophesied. But how did he do it? He did it by raising up men to help him. God used his people to fulfill his promise. Last section. Our last section, we jump forward in time again. So now we're at the time when Saul has died and it's the time when the kingdom is being handed over to King David. Uh, again, we list the men who turned the kingdom over to David and notice again, just in this first verse, how it happens exactly as God had promised. So chapter 12, verse 23. 12:23. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him as the Lord had said. God said David would be king. How did he keep his promise? Well, again, it's through his people, as each one did their bit. Now, let's have a look at this list. Uh, first, you'll notice there are big numbers, there are lots and lots of support. But also, what I want you to do is to just count with me, as we work through, how many of the 12 tribes of Israel are there supporting David. Okay, we'll count, count how many of the 12 tribes of Israel are there. Verse 24, men of Judah, carrying shield and spear, 6,800 armed for battle. Men of Simeon. Warriors ready for battle, 7,100. Men of Levi, 4,600, including Jehoiada, leader of the family of Aaron, with 3,700 men. And Zadok, a brave young warrior with 22 officers from his family. Men of Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000, most of whom had remained loyal to Saul's house until then. Men of Ephraim, brave warriors, famous in their own clans, 20,800. Men of half the tribe of Manasseh, we'll call that half a tribe, designated by name to come and make David king, 18,000. Men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. Men of Zebulun, experienced soldiers prepared for battle with every type of weapon to help David with undivided loyalty, 50,000. Men of Naphtali, 1,000 officers together with 37,000 men carrying shields and spears. Men of Dan, ready for battle, 28,600. Men of Asher, experienced soldiers prepared for battle, 40,000. And from the east of the Jordan, men of Reuben, Gad, and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, armed with every type of weapon, 120,000. How many did you count? How many of the 12 tribes of Israel? I got 13. Yeah, did you get 13? So 13 of the 12 tribes of Israel are there supporting David okay, as he becomes king. Of course, if you know the history, you'll know that the, uh, the, the man Joseph, his tribe is divided into two. He gets two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why there are 13. But do you see the, the point that the author's making? There's nobody left out. Israel are unanimous. Israel are united. Israel are 100% acting as one on this. They are all working together to ensure that God's word is fulfilled. They are all working together, getting behind God's promised king, doing what it takes to fulfill God's promise and hand the kingship over to him. And then in the last section, notice the joy. 
The joy is there, united. The joy is they all play their part and God's promise is fulfilled and David becomes king. Verse 38. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make God king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. The men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking, for their families had supplied provisions for them. Also, their neighbours from afar away, Issachar, Zebulun and Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules and oxen. And here it sounds like the supper we're about to have. There were plentiful supplies of flour, fig cakes, raisin cakes, wine, oil, cattle and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Okay, there it is. Here is how... God fulfilled his promise to make David king. How did he do it? Through his people. As they were united, as they each played their role, as they stood up and bravely were mighty warriors. All right, now remember what we're dealing with here, with this book of 1 Chronicles. You remember, 1 Chronicles is written as a history lesson. It's not written about events that were happening at the time. So uh, do you remember the last couple of weeks we talked about this? Do you remember the sort of the date of King David? Can anybody remember? About, about 1,000 BC are these stories of Saul and David and so on. So it's about 1,000 BC. But the book of Chronicles, remember as we looked through the genealogies, we took the genealogies through to about 400 BC. Okay, so... The stories that are being written about, 1000 BC, but being written about in 400 BC, it's a long gap between them. So the question we've got to keep asking ourselves is why write this story for these people? Why, Why write the story of Saul and David for Israel in 400 BC? Now remember Israel in 400 BC, things are nothing like what they were in the glory days of David. 400 BC, Israel is a tiny little nothing in this massive Persian empire that extends from Europe to India. The the, the king of Israel at this time is not someone in the line of David, as God promised, and we'll see the promise reiterated in 1 Chronicles. God's promises still stand. Uh, God has said a, a man from the line of David will rule not just Israel but the whole world. God's promises are still there. But the ruler of Israel at this time is the Persian emperor. Israel are doing it tough. They're a tiny, weak nation. Why then... Write that story about David to these people. Why write the story about how God kept his promises to make David king to these people in Israel here in 400 BC? Why tell that story 600 years later? I reckon it would be an encouragement, don't you? I reckon I'd be encouraged if I was Israel in 400 BC and I heard these stories. Because here is a story of God keeping his promises even when it didn't look possible. David's men, three blokes in a barley field and an army of Philistines. Doesn't look like it's going to be a victory. But God keeps his promise through his mighty men. Benaiah rocks up with his club to this seven and a half foot Egyptian. How tall is Benaiah? He's probably a big tough Israelite like me, you know, maybe four foot seven or something like that. All right? Okay? Doesn't look possible. But God keeps his promise. David isn't, he's an outlaw. He's running for his very life. Saul is the king with the army. David is running around with a sword and nobody helping him. There's no way he's going to become king. But God promised. And God keeps his promises, even when it doesn't look possible. If God says it, God will do it. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. It's got to be an encouragement for Israel in 400 BC as they look at this incredible obstacle of Persia and, and the rise of Greece. 
They have a God who keeps his promises. It's got to be encouraging. Not just encouraging, though. I reckon it's got to be challenging for Israel. Because here in this story of David, God doesn't use magic or, or angels or something. God uses his people to keep his promises. God uses his united people, not his pathetic, wimpish people, not people who are, who are going to run away, not people who are going to turn Greek when Alexander takes over, not people who are going to be wimpsy. He uses his brave people. He uses his faithful people. There's the challenge for Israel in 400 BC. God's going to keep his promises, but where are the mighty men? Where is united Israel? Where are the people who step up and serve the God who has made his promises? Where are the brave ones? Where are the ones who play their part? The story of David, I reckon it would have been a real encouragement but also a real challenge for its original readers. Friends, I reckon it it should have exactly the same effect on us. We have seen God keep his promises to Israel. He promised he would raise up a man from the line of David to be the king of the world. And a man from the line of David is king here tonight in Chatswood. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross to to open up his kingdom for sinners. God raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand, and he is now extending his kingdom throughout this world. He's declared Jesus to be the king of this world, and he's revealed his plan. It was there in the first reading that we had. And Danny, is it going to come up for us now? Thanks. God's told us the future of the world. Here it is. God made known to us his will to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's God's plan. There's God's promise. It dates all the way back to the time of King David and beyond King David. Jesus is going to be the head of everything and everyone. Jesus is going to be the king of everything and everyone. God's promise continues for us. But you know, it's not just the promise that continues God is still using the same mode. He keeps his promise the same way. And that's the point of Ephesians chapter 4, our second reading. How is God keeping his promise to make Jesus king of everyone? It's the same as in David's time. He's using his people. As we are, to quote from Ephesians chapter 4, united. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because there is only one Lord. And then he goes on to say, you've got to each play your part. Not kill Philistines or Egyptians or or, or lions anymore. No, no, no. Now it's as we submit ourselves to Jesus as king, as we obey Jesus as king, we bring the lordship of uh, of Jesus to this earth. And as we encourage other people to submit to Jesus, we bring the lordship of Jesus to this earth. We ourselves are uniting everything under Jesus as Lord. From Ephesians chapter 4, God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare... God's people, not to be audiences, not to be passengers, not to be shoppers, no, no, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How's it going to happen? As we, speaking the truth in love, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Friends, do you see the point? God's promise still stands. David's greater son will be the king of this world. And God is still using his people to keep his promise. 
So friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged. I don't know how you feel as you go back to your non-Christian family or as you head off to school or or as you um, go to your workplace. I don't know how you feel about being a Christian. Do you feel kind of in a minority? Not if you go to Covenant Christian School, but maybe in in most places. Do, Do you feel sort of, as you face up to someone and think, oh, I'll share the gospel with this guy. Except he seems like a seven and a half foot Egyptian to me. It doesn't seem like he's going to be any possible chance of, of, of having this person submit to Jesus as Lord. I think some of us would rather go into a pit on a snowy day and fight with a lion than share the gospel. We feel small, we feel feeble, we feel hopeless. But friends, God has promised. The day will come when every knee will bow to King Jesus. If you're on Jesus' team, you're on the winning team. God has promised it will happen. So be encouraged. But don't just be encouraged, be challenged. Because God is keeping his promise through you. He doesn't need you, but he graciously gives you the privilege of extending his kingdom here on earth. He gives you the privilege of being a mighty warrior for Jesus. And so the challenge is there. Will you do your part? Will you submit to Jesus as king? Will you get on the team? Will you work in unity and harmony with his people? Will you serve Jesus diligently? Will you be up for these works of service? Will you be up to speak the truth in love? Will you be bold? Will you be brave? Last holiday we were up at Patonga, as we usually do, and we went to Gosford Prezi, and a mate of mine up there was telling me about a bloke who he met. Uh, this bloke was a filmmaker. And he was very clever, very good with words, and he was rabidly opposed to Christianity. And my mate met him at a dinner party, and this bloke just tore strips off him. And my mate felt completely out of his depth. He felt like there's nothing that he could ever do to, to, to convince this bloke. But uh, they, they, they struck up a friendship... And what my mate did, he thought, I'm never going to argue this guy into the kingdom. He's way too clever for me. I'm just going to be me. Not going to hide anything. I'm going to be uncensored. Just talk about Jesus as a natural part of my life. And amazingly, gradually, the anger of this guy turned to interest. And he ended up becoming a Christian. And I was introduced to him up in Gosford Prezi. And if you're brave... You never know what God might do. You never know how he might use you. So will you be brave? Will you speak up for Jesus? What's coming up? Saturday the 25th of June? Soup, Jazz and Jesus. There's going to be a clear talk about Jesus. You bring somebody there, they will have the opportunity to hear about how Jesus is king and put their trust in him What we need is some mighty warriors. What we need is someone who will step up and actually ask somebody to come along. We'll have a nice night there by ourselves listening to Paul's son and some jazz. Not the idea. Will you be a mighty warrior? You know, to come back to that issue that I raised at the beginning, this has got to change the way we think about church. Jesus is not looking for an audience. Church is not a theatre. Jesus is not looking for... A shopper or consumer. Church is not a shop. Jesus is not looking for a passenger. Church is not a bus trip, no way. 
What Jesus is looking for is mighty warriors, men and women who will join his army, men and women who, who will be willing to stand up and tackle scary obstacles, men and women who will be willing to unite together as a team behind the Lord Jesus Christ, like Israel did with King David. Jesus wants brave warriors who will serve their king, not just in church, it's all so easy here, but out there, in your family, at your workplace, in your school, in the mother's group, where, whatever it is. Jesus wants warriors and, and church, this gathering here, and thanks to Warren for this illustration, church is a bit like a mash unit. Why do we come to church? Why do we come to Bible study? We, we get our message from high command as we hear God's word. We tell our war stories. We encourage each other. We get, we get trained up. We get patched up, perhaps. We get our equipment fixed. And then we get sent back out there to the front line to be brave warriors for Jesus, where we do the works of service that God has for us, where we play our part extending his kingdom. Friends, can you see being a Christian is not a passive thing. It's not about being an audience or a consumer or a passenger. It's not the religious section of your life. No, no, Jesus demands much more than that from you. God is using his people to fulfill his promises. He did it in David's day. He's doing it today. The question is... Where are the warriors? Where are the mighty warriors? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you because you are a God who keeps your promises. You have promised that Jesus will be the king of everything and everyone and you will keep that promise. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have been so gracious to us as to allow us to be part of your kingdom as to enable us by your spirit to put our trust in Jesus and submit ourselves to him as king. But more than that, we thank you for the incredible privilege that it is that we can actually be part of your plan for this world. So, Father, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would enable us to be brave and bold servants of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.